The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Those of you who are new today, uh, this is the last uh, Dharma practice day of this season this year on the Eighth Full Path. It's fine to come today if it's your first time. And the Dharma practice days are, are opportunities to explore particular topics in the practice or in the Dharma in a more focused and, and uh, uh, way with a group and with practice and exploration discussion. And it's a little bit trying to uh, support the important aspect of Buddhist practice or Dharma practice, meditation practice that happens uh, in collective, happens together in community. Uh, Many people associate meditation with something you do alone, you close your eyes and do your own inner thing. But uh, meditation fits into a wider um, um, context of practices and personal development and growth that occurs in community with others. And without that sense of being in a community, without working in a community, um, it's a lot slower often to develop in uh, the Buddhist practice. So historically, um, people who are serious about practice, they didn't have a lot of options as lay people um, because of the way societies were set up. And so the most common way was to go and be a monastic. And uh, monastics were most commonly uh, in community with other monastics and so they shared their practice, or shared themselves. They were bump up against each other. They had a lot of discussions about this, and so it happened in community. And so here we're have, we're exploring this clearly today in, in community. It's not just a matter of me teaching and you receiving teachings. I also believe that uh, when we engage in a topic personally, theme, and somehow are involved in conversations ourselves and talk about it or hear other people speak that it goes deeper, or we kind of process it or digest it in a way that's very different and more whole, holistic, than if it's just this narrower one way, you know, a teacher teaches something and that kind of goes on in through one channel, perhaps. And uh, so there's other channels that should be opened up and connected to. Um, exactly how it unfolds today, I'm not completely sure. Last time we did more meditation and still quiet than we had earlier in the year because the topic was mindfulness. And it would say, th- you'd think that with concentration being much more associated with meditation, maybe today would be even quieter. Um, I'm going to feel my way and see what feels right today. So uh, the Eightfold Path is one of the ways to explain the wider context for certainly meditation practice, but the overall purpose and endeavor of what Buddhist practice is, that um, the possibility of personal transformation um, uh, that Buddhism offers um, is offered in, in the, in the, as a path of practice. A path of practice is described as usually a gradual path, which is important to remember for those of you who are in a hurry, that it's a gradual path and that's gradual unfolding, gradual cultivation, gradual, gradual growth, gradual development. But it, is a, but it is a path to follow, it's unfolding to follow. And so with a, one of the most primary descriptions of that path is the Eightfold Path, which sometimes is described as a linear path one, one to eight. They kind of build on each other. 
sometimes as a spiral where you come to eight, you start again at one at a more developed level and go around and around. And sometimes it's described as the eight strands of a single rope, or eight strands or eight lanes, or I don't know, of a single path or road, where they actually work together in harmony. And when they're all there together, then they can, um, you know, they all unfold the best. Um, the, um, uh, for the, uh, the way that in Buddhism, in kind of more lofty language, the, the, the people who have matured in the Eightfold Path are described as not practicing the Eightfold Path anymore, but they become the Eightfold Path. So it becomes so integral to who they are that that's who they become. So maybe it's most easily understood, uh, you know, with the idea of um, truthfulness. Right speech is part of the Eightfold Path, and part of right speech is being truthful. So at some point, hopefully, being truthful is not a practice that you endeavor to take and you do your best to be honest, but rather it becomes who you are. You become a truthful person. You don't have to take it on as a practice anymore. So in that sense, all these eightfold steps of the path can become who you are. They're practices, they're developments. They're both the practices we do and personal developments that we grow into. So concentration, right concentration is the last step. And so concentration is practices we can do to cultivate greater concentration. But then at some point, it's not a practice anymore. It becomes, maybe temporarily, becomes who we are. We are concentrated. And that points to the meaning of the word samadhi, which is usually translated as concentration. Uh, Samadhi is a very important word in Indian religions. And in fact, in some forms of Indian religions outside of Buddhism, samadhi is um, treated almost synonymously with kind of the same, or or not synonymously, but has the same place in the religion as um, uh, nirvana has in Buddhism. It's kind of like the ultimate experience of liberation. And that tradition is sometimes called samadhi. In Buddhism, it doesn't have samadhi, it doesn't hold, doesn't use the word samadhi that kind of very lofty way. But certainly samadhi is a very significant term that points to a capacity of, uh, of, a, of a very unique, powerful mind that most people experience rarely in their lives, if at all. But the word samadhi maybe shouldn't be translated as concentration because the association some people in English have with concentration is that it's a kind of a narrow, uh, laser-like focus from the control tower in the head. Uh, It's kind of like you bear down, you zoom in, you kind of get tight and narrow and focused. Uh, And there is certainly an aspect of that kind of narrowing or settling of focus sometimes in concentration practice. But if uh, if that's the primary thing we think about when we think of concentration, it can lead to headaches <laughs> or straining. And the, the word samadhi is, is more appropriately understood as a state rather than as a particular activity. So it's a state of concentration as opposed to the narrow, you know, narrow focus of being concentrated, doing concentration. And so a state of concentration uh, when you, uh, it's a state of being, in a particular way, and so it includes all of us, all of who we are. Um, it's not just a mental functioning. Uh, when you're in a strong state of concentration, then it's something you feel in your body as much as you feel in your mind. Um, it's a holistic experience. And so, a little bit, I'd like to then to translate samadhi as composure. 
Um, it just uh, not because it's the, you know the, maybe the best translation for it, but if you, it's one of the possible translations, it has the uh, connotation of of something that you do with your whole being. If you compose yourself on what you're doing, um, most people I think associate that with both physical and mental things. Like you, know, you compose yourself by shifting how you sit. You sit upright, or more balanced, or some, some kind of way. And perhaps it's also kind of shifting or settling or focusing of the mind as well. So there's physical and mental kind of aspects of these two things. The, um, uh, one of the primary characteristics of a, of a concentrated mind is a tranquil mind, is a quiet mind. That discursive thinking uh, settles away. It's probably one of the primary characteristics of concentration is that the ordinary discursive thinking that keeps you in the past and the future keeps you commentating what's going on, settles away and falls away. So there's a kind of tranquility or peacefulness or stillness that cultivates in the mind. And it's something that that stillness that can cultivate or tranquility uh, is uh, progressive. So uh, as samadhi gets stronger, um, uh, the stillness of the mind, the quiet in the mind becomes nicer and nicer or more and more still. And this mind is also characterized by being soft and bright. And as it goes along, the progressive deepening of samadhi becomes a mind that has a a state that has a lot of joy in it. It's bright, joyful, delightful uh, stillness of the mind. So it's not stilling the mind getting dull. It's stilling the mind. There's kind of a brightness that occurs as well. The the function of samadhi on the Eightfold Path, function in the practice, is not for its own sake. It isn't just simply to get concentrated and still and list out just because that's a nice thing to do, but rather to, uh, samadhi creates the conditions in the mind that do two important things. One is that um, it supports deep insight. It helps you to see much more clearly what's going on because you don't have so much stuff in the way and activity and judgments and ideas. And so you can start, and, and, uh, and things are quiet, slow, slow down enough, you can actually start seeing much more clearly what's happening how it's happening, when it's happening. So it provides opportunity for deep insight. And the analogy I like to use for it is that of um, maybe um, holding a big telescope, long telescope in your hand to look at the moon. And, you know, you just can't hold the telescope still enough in your own hands to be able to stay, you know, that's long, you know looking at the moon because it's, it moves a little bit and you can't hold it still enough. And so you put the, uh, the telescope on a tripod, and on a tripod it can be still enough so you can keep it focused on the moon. So the concentration practice is kind of like having a tripod, tripod for, the, for the, your, your, the perceptions in the mind. You, you're not wobbly so much. And also a t- telescope or magnifying glass, you can see much more detail. So that's one function, to see more deeply. The other function is that when the mind is concentrated, it had to let go of a lot of attachments. Uh, when we're attached to what happened in the past, the mind is thinking about that a lot. Attached to what's going to happen, our plans, it's thinking a lot, it's involved. And as the thinking mind, the attached mind, kind of quiets down, settles down, the mind becomes more uh, uh, f- f- fluid, softer, pliable. Um, uh, it becomes, um, you know, just, just more relaxed. And in that more relaxed state of mind, it's easier to let go because you're, you know, the clinging, the attachment is not there. 
And so uh, part of the function of deeper concentration is to facilitate the process of deep, deep letting go or more transformative levels of letting go. Of letting go. Um, not letting go of, you know, what you're going to have for dinner, but letting go of who you're going to be for dinner. <laughs> you know, the, your, your, the whole identity issues, you know, sense of self that's connected to whatever's going on. So, um, and it's nice to think of, the, of this last step, the Eightfold, right, Samadhi, as being built on the foundation of the previous seven. Um, because as we understand or deepen or practice the previous seven, it creates a certain kind of transformation inside of us that makes it easier than to get concentrated. So especially you can see that with the middle steps, uh, which are ethical. So right um, speech, right action, and right livelihood. If your ethics are uh, ethics that disturb you, that agitate you, that keep you kind of tight or wound up, then it's more difficult to settle into a deep state of concentration. And so a very important function of ethical practice in Buddhism is to create conditions so you feel pretty relaxed and you feel good about yourself so that when you sit down to meditate, you don't have a lot of anxiety and concerns that get in the way of settling deeply. So, um, I'd like to ask you a question now. And that is, in that guided meditation, I asked you at some point uh, to remember about a time when you were particularly concentrated in your life, in some some activity, remember what it was like. And then to um, consider what the conditions were that supported that concentration, that helped that to happen. And I wondered if any of you, something popped up that became clear. What were the conditions that supported that experience of concentration? And perhaps uh, today, if I can remember to keep reminding you, how about if you say your names before you speak so we could all get to know each other a little bit better? My name is Philippa. Um, what came to mind was um, playing the piano, how um, at one point I had worked even a couple of years on my piece and I I played it and was, you know, all the work, all the effort to remember all the notes and um, to settle my nerves and so forth, just that fell away and I was absorbed in just making the music, being with the music. I was the music and um, the conditions that I reflected on was all those years of practice (laughs) to um, bring about this experience. Uh Beautiful. So the regular practice and becoming and mastering it to the craft and knowing it really intimately and well allowed you to enter into it and become it in a way. Thank you. Uh, I used to practice walking on Bill. <laughs> Bill. Thank you, Richard. practice, walking on the uh, rails of railroad tracks, and uh, it seemed impossible at first. I'd take a step, fall off, take a step, fall off. But I got to where I could go for very long distances, um, just walking on a rail. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I can hear myself, and uh, it felt it felt nice to be able to uh, uh, go long distances. It um, uh, there was a kind of a light, airy feeling about it, uh, but but I still had to concentrate with every step. And but support to answer your other question, but supported uh, that kind of concentration was simply the fact that. Uh, I had to concentrate because if I didn't, I'd fall off. <laughs> so sometimes um, the need of the situation, or the, f- or sometimes even fear of the consequences, can keep us pretty focused. Near accidents in cars get people pretty focused for brief spurts. Well, I don't know if this uh, counts after your David. I'm not sure uh, how well it counts after your description of what is concentration, but uh, when I think about uh, programming, it's uh, it's a very hyper-focused activity. And there's a certain immersion into mm, all the abstract concepts. It's not necessarily discursive. Uh, and I think the conditions are are that immersion, um, so non not distraction, and also a very strong determination to to stay immersed in this and to get somewhere with it. Mm-hmm. Great. One of the interesting things in terms of you know, the discursive mind is that um, you know it's possible to in some some activities like um, a craft, perhaps doing a hobby. Um, to be very absorbed in it in a way that's very enjoyable and very present and time falls away and you're just fully engaged in it and um, you, know, you don't even hear what's going on around you so much. And, um, and you're not thinking about what to have for dinner or what happened yesterday at work. I mean, that, all, that kind of world falls away. But the mind is still thinking. You know, but it's thinking about the project. You know, should I try this? What should I do? You know, what do we need here? And so the... the the absence of thinking is not required for some very satisfying degree of samadhi or absorption in what we're doing. But it's the nature of the thinking changes. And it's the kind of thinking we have is just really about what's happening while we're doing it. Someone else? Yes, Sid. Uh, Sydney. Sydney. So I, I thought of many things that people have mentioned, things that kept my mind focused on a project or music where I was focused on the sound and walking where I'm focused on my body. And, you know, they all serve that purpose of keeping my mind focused in one area so it didn't go off like you were just describing. But then I flashed on another experience where... Um, it was right after my mom had died, very unexpectedly. And I suppose I was in shock. Of course, I was grieving. But when, I, when people were coming over you know, to express their condolences and whatnot, I found that my mind was as empty and as pure as I could ever remember it. It was like nothing else seemed to matter. Mm. But just being present with these people was 
pretty amazing. So, so death can death can really focus and create a certain kind of absorption or engagement that, and part of that situation, many, many, many other concerns are most of them. Everything falls away, and if you're not involved in that activity, then this this beautiful kind of clear, empty mind can be there, and so it can happen around death. I mean, for me, the first one of the first times where I really felt this strongly was. Uh, taking a, a final exams in college. Um, uh, I would get so focused and so involved in the exam. I'd do all the preparation and be ready and just ready to, for it to come out. I had it in my mind for one day, right, just for that day. But it would, <laughs> it would, it would come pouring out. And then I would leave after the exam and I'd just feel... I, I don't think stoned is the right word because it was such clarity but in an altered state, everything, like my mind was empty. Everything was empty. It's a peaceful, empty, clear place because I'd been emptied or cleared out of all these other things besides, and when I was no longer taking the test, everything, everything, everything didn't come, you know, my regular concerns didn't come pouring back in, but I remained in that kind of open, quiet, peaceful state. Two experiences that are um, were very different from each other. One, um, I used to be a goldsmith, and um, I had some idea. I, can't, I don't remember some of the details very well, but I remember the experience very well. Um, I had some idea about carving a small face um, um, that was inspired by some antique um, carvings, French and French carvings I had seen, and I just sat down with some wax, and um, I started working on it. Not very clear what I was going to do, and as I worked on it, I became really deeply focused, concentrated, and several hours passed, and it just came out perfect, um, with great ease. Um, but I wasn't, I was very tense, um, and there was a lot of desire. Uh, uh, I, I didn't think of it as that then, but I was uncomfortable, physically uncomfortable as I did it, um, restless, agitated. Um, but I've never forgotten the experience. Actually, there were three things right around the same time that I did quite in the same way. And I understood something about that. Um, maybe 10 years later, I was doing a long retreat, um, a Mahasi-style retreat. And about the fourth week into it, I was sitting, and I was having some tea. And I wasn't doing anything in particular or thinking anything in particular. And as I lifted the cup, I, I just had this incredible... Um, sense of all the muscles in my hand and body all moving and and the weight of the cup and that it wasn't happening by itself, that I was very involved in this process. And that experience was quite different than the other. It was very concentrated, but I had great calmness uh, that, that went with mm -hmm. it. Great. So there can be different motivations or different influences on concentration. And certainly uh, desire, strong desire for something, grieve and greed, you know, for something. I remember getting 14 and getting very concentrated on the telephone book. 
and going through it because all I knew was her name and the street she lived on. Her, her, first, her first name and the street she lived on. And so my friend, went, my friend went from the front of the telephone book and I went from the back looking for everyone who lived on that street. And then we would call that number and ask for her. <laughs> it was concentrated. <laughs> yes. But yeah, that, 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 that didn't help. <laughs> My name is Arlene, and I, I don't know why. Usually, when you ask us to think of something, I'm going. What am I going to think of? And this time, a lot of things popped into my head. But the very first thing, for some reason, that popped into my head was the actual delivery of my second child. Mm. And I was definitely focused on delivering the baby. (laughs) And as you've been talking to other people, I've realized, no, I didn't wonder what I was having for dinner. (laughs) And then I thought, you know, I've recently started an app program where it gives you bells to bring you back to your concentration. I'm thinking, a contraction is kind of, I guess, like a bell. Mindfulness <laughs> <You know? laughs> But um, it, it was definitely an experience that I was totally with. And one of your questions, I believe, was, you know, what, what uh, motivated that yeah. or something. And it's I, when I was thinking about that, it was well, my body was the one that was was um, in control, so to speak. Yeah, so yeah. it was a physical um, happening that, uh, plus all of the other mental things right. that go with the preparation of delivery of a child. Uh-huh. And then she was a girl, and I had a boy. <laughs> I wanted a girl. <laughs> And uh, the the joy, joy that followed when uh-huh. they hand you the baby, yeah. and you think you're going to drop her. <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice, yeah. So, I mean, it isn't just the delivering mother that, uh, but also health care providers involved in births and deaths and serious illness. You know, really, it, it kind of inf- kind of brings it, er, clicks everything in place. And, ver- and I think some people involved in those kinds of fields are um, attracted to it, not in addition, hopefully in addition to wanting to care for people, but uh, I find it almost addictive sometimes, that kind of absorption and presence and everything else drops away. Okay, maybe, maybe let's have one more. I'm Jim, and um, one I thought about was a few months ago in um, a musical experience. Uh, I just got totally absorbed in my, you know, tears were streaming down my eye, uh, from my eyes, and uh, some of the prerequisites for that, I think, were being familiar with the music, so I didn't have to deal with the uh, the mental processing of new music, um, and shutting out the visual part. Uh, it happened to be sort of a goofy postmodern opera production of a classic uh, opera. And that was a total distraction, but closing my eyes uh, and just relaxing was just fantastic. Great, great. Oh, no. So, so again, so, so, so familiarity is a certain kind of 
finding your way in the situation is put to rest, you don't do that. And so then you can get absorbed in it. Um, also, familiarity also was an entry into it. Yeah, and, and so there was no thinking about the past or the future, even what the next uh-huh. couple of notes are going to be. Great. They're just right there. Great, great. So thank you for all this. So uh, one of the uh, comments about these descriptions is that uh, none of the people who describe something describe meditation practice. <laughs> and um, so there are, there are activities in our life that can naturally, I don't know if naturally is the right word, but uh, more easily pull us into being absorbed in them. I mean, death, childbirth, um, playing musical instrument for a long time, performing, you know, certain things where the interest, the consequences, the maybe a little bit even the fear involved, uh, the desires involved, um, uh, the pleasure involved, kind of pull us into it because it's, you know, somewhat, one way or the other it's more captivating or compelling to stay there. Sit down to meditate, most people, um, it's, meditation is not one of those activities. You know, it's not like you're about to give birth. It's not like you're about to die. It's not about like you have suddenly you're doing this really wonderful recreational activity. Or it's just so uh, so. It can be much harder for many people to get concentrated in meditation because you don't have the support or the aid of something that's obviously compelling. And so then, one solution is to give up meditation and do the things which are compelling. Many years ago, I saw a little 10, 15 minute movie documentary about a, a man who said, um, I used to uh, ride motorcycles on the weekend, to ride motorcycles, and, uh, and that's how I de-stressed, you know, my week and work and all that. But then I had, um, I got married and had children, and I didn't have time to do my long motorcycle rides anymore. So I had to find a quicker way to de-stress, that to kind of... T- Make, make everything fall away. And, um, and what he discovered was that uh, he would sneak into um, a tall um, skyscrapers being built early in the morning, just as it was getting a dawn, and he would uh, climb up as far as he could or a certain height, and then um, he would jump out with his um, paraglider. And then he would uh, paraglide down into the streets where there was a van or a car waiting for him and uh, get away because this was illegal to do this. And then he would, they would get jump in the car and off they would go. And he said, by, you know, in those few minutes it took to jump and set, set the paraglide out, that or the parachute, whatever it was, that um, uh, you know, he would de-stress. All the concerns and worries and thoughts of the day, week and day would just vanish. And so... So the solution, you know, because meditation is hard, of course, then is to take up jumping out of skyscrapers. <laughs> you know, it's, you know it saves a lot of time. <laughs> um, however, uh, so meditation is a slower process. And rather than being discouraged by that and thinking, oh, this is unfortunate and I should do something else, it you know, gets me concentrated more quickly. Um, what meditation does is it, uh, it, it, uh, it's very real. Because you're, it's real in that you, have, you meet yourself. You meet what your mental tendencies, behavior is. And you have, to, you have to confront it, you have to deal with it, you have to work with it, and you have to kind of get work through it, develop wisdom, understanding, letting go, a variety of things that it takes so that you're no longer caught 
in destructive thoughts. You no longer have values and ideas that keep you from being fully here. Discovering that it involves developing a mental strength, inner strength. So you have the inner strength to be able to stay focused. You don't re- require fear or, you know, you know uh, being pregnant every time you want to get concentrated. <laughs> and um, the, um, so the, um, the idea that um, you develop this inner strength so you have the ability to do it rather than being forced into it or somebody said by circumstance. So it takes a while and some people it takes longer than others but it's a really important process. Um, this is why, uh, and a reason also why I feel very um, hesitant about a couple of uh, things that people would like to use to augment or bypass uh, the slow work of meditation practice. The two things that are, you know, kind of come around the scene from time to time is drugs, you know, like LSD or something, like you just, you know, that's a lot faster. Um, and the other is that people, all kinds of people, especially in this area, come up with these wonderful biofeedback devices. That, that you, and they're more and more popular, coming in more and more higher technology. They're going to be a way of the future. I suspect that, you know, meditations in 100 years is going to change dramatically because uh, they're having these, you know, these, put these little caps on your head and they measure electrodes and you get biofeedback and you can get pretty concentrated pretty quickly, I suspect, with this kind of biofeedback system. And uh, maybe it'll be pr- prove useful. I'll find out how to use them over time. But for now, and maybe I'm still a little conservative, uh, I still put, I think it's tremendously valuable to uh, deal with yourself and not have something that bypasses dealing with yourself. And so, uh, get concentrated too quickly and not do the inner personal work, meeting yourself and confronting yourself, I think is unfortunate. So let it take its time and develop slowly over time and develop a stronger mind rather than having some kind of prop that helps you uh, in that process. So, um, um, so, but concentration, the last thing I'll say before we take a break is that concentration, developing concentration, developing samadhi is uh, very important in all forms of Buddhist meditation. Um, there's, um, it's an inherent part of it. It's either the inten- explicit, the main point of the meditation practice, or it's a byproduct of it, or it's uh, really considered to be an important partner in the concentration practice. And so for people doing vipassana, mindfulness meditation, insight meditation, concentration is a very important uh, element. It's usually, uh, in the way I was trained, it's, uh, it follows in the wake of mindfulness practice. You develop concentration, certainly, but the emphasis is do, doing it uh, with mindfulness in the forefront. So follow, concentrate, you get concentrated as a byproduct. Other places, it's much more explicit in the forefront or much more explicit as a partner. You're cultivating both together at the same time. But one way or the other, samadhi um, uh, is very important uh, in developing Buddhist meditation. So it's, today the te- topic is right samadhi. So let's take a 15-minute break until 10 to 11. And I suggest that we, let's do this break in silence so that we can kind of keep things, the mind, a little bit... Um